There's also work that you want to delegate as a manager because you're trying to help somebody grow. And I think that's the other type of delegation that that I look at is when you're you're trying to take something that might be in somebody's stretch zone and, and you want to help them learn, you want to help them have an experience that they haven't been able to have yet. And I think in order to do that, you have to have enough psychological safety on your team where somebody feels safe failing. You know, if you can't fail, you can't stretch. Welcome to the Supermanagers Podcast, where we interview leaders from all walks of life to tease out the habits, thought patterns, learnings, and experiences that help them be extraordinary at the fine craft of management. Our goal is to bring you the lessons and the insights so that you don't have to learn through your own mistakes, but so that you can shortcut your way to being a great leader. This podcast is brought to you by Fellow, a software platform that helps managers and their teams collaborate on meeting agendas, track action items, and turn chaotic meetings into productive work sessions. Check it out at www.fellow.app. Hey, fellow managers and leaders, I'm Aiden, and I'm the CEO of Fellow.app. Today, I'm very excited to introduce you to Spencer Norman. He's the VP of Engineering at Privy, which is an attentive company focused on e-commerce marketing as a platform to online brands. And we talk about three very distinct topics and a whole lot more, really, but three topics that I think are, are very, very important. Spencer's done a lot of managing in the world of remote work. So we talk a lot about what it's like to have one-on-one meetings, particularly in a remote setting. And we talk about how he structures his one-on-ones very tactically with a check-in section, discussion section, and follow-ups, what each of those sections means, what's really good to put in them, how to structure them. And of course, we also talk about skip levels. And you know, skip levels, I find, are one of those things that not as many people are super strict about, right? So I think one-on-one meetings, certainly the listeners of this podcast are all in on one-on-one meetings. The skip levels, I find, you know, tend to not get the same level of attention. So we definitely talk about that and how to make sure that they do happen. We talk about managing through an acquisition, the nuances of what it means to be acquired, some of the pitfalls, what people typically get wrong in a leadership position. And finally, delegating. Delegating is this thing. We've been talking about it a lot in the last few episodes here of the podcast, but it is one of those things that I really find that even if you've been doing it for a long time, there's still depth to learning the nuances of it. And so I really enjoyed this the first time that I heard this framework myself, which was the comfort stretch panic framework and how it relates to delegating. So super interesting, all in all, I think it was really great to have Spencer on the show. Of course, today, as I'm recording this intro, I will say that it is my birthday. And if you wanna say happy birthday, I would love to see that in the form of a five-star review. So you can write that in. I would greatly appreciate it. Our team would appreciate it. So thank you for doing that. And of course, the Supermanagers Slack Workplace. It is a great place to be. Check it out. If you want to join, it's really collaborative, really fun. Meet lots of great people. You can send us a note to supermanagers at fellow.app to join. And with that said, and without further ado, here's Spencer Norman on this episode of the Supermanagers Podcast. Spencer, welcome to the show. 
Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, very excited to to have you on. There's there's a lot that we're going to get to chat about today. But just to give the audience a little bit of a background, you've had a pretty extensive leadership career working at companies like MailChimp, Get Outfitted. Today, you're VP of Engineering at Privy, which is an attentive company in the e-commerce marketing platform world. And you know, before we get to a lot of the things that you and I were just talking about before we hit record, I did want to dial back to the very beginning and ask you, do you remember when you first started to manage or lead a team? What were some of the early mistakes, the early learnings that you had? Yeah, I, I love this question because I think it's it's so interesting. But for me, I actually actually tried to avoid getting into a management role for quite a while. I was trying to stay in IC roles or at least not in the the highest leadership roles in several different jobs that I took on. So for example, uh, Get Outfitted, I was the first engineering hire and was really just very excited to get in and, and build software. I, I didn't see myself necessarily as the, the manager or the leader and intentionally left some space at the top when I was working with the, the CEO and the founder of the company, was really hoping we could go out and hire somebody who would be able to come in and show me the ropes and teach me how to do everything and you know manage me and all of that. And over time, it became clear that you know what we actually needed was somebody who could come in and work with me and that I could show how we had built things and, and kind of teach the ropes myself. And so we ended up hiring a, a small team for me. And I guess I ended up in management more accidentally in that way than than intentionally. So that's interesting. I mean, do you, do you know why you were trying to avoid it? Was it vague? You didn't know what it was all about? The way I've organized my career, like kind of the way the way I approach different roles, is almost like a learning mindset. Like I have this idea that I can always learn something in every role that I'm in, and I think there's almost always somebody that that is smarter than me or has done things uh, before that I can learn from. And so it wasn't necessarily that I didn't think I could do the job of managing, but more that I thought I still had so much to learn about that particular role and I thought, you know, if we could find somebody who could come in and, and show me how to do it, it would, you know, greatly accelerate my learning and also the the company's ability to execute. So you get into this role, you you thought you could learn faster if someone was brought in. I imagine you learned that you would learn pretty fast if you were thrown into the leadership role. Was there any particular learning at that time that stood out, maybe a way that you started to operate that you know, later on you tweaked or changed? You're certainly right. Like, I think one of the things that I have realized is that just kind of being thrown into the deep end and, you know, ending up in a position where you're forced to make decisions and forced to operate because there isn't anybody else who's going to do that for you is probably the fastest way to learn, in my experience. You don't always make the right decisions, and, and certainly I didn't, but they're learning from that kind of constant feedback and, and learning from mistakes was, was a great way for me to learn. There were a lot of different things that we experienced. So Get Outfitted, we were actually building initially on top of Shopify. It was a rental gear marketplace. So we would rent ski and snowboard equipment. We'd ship it directly to people's resorts. A really cool business. It made a lot of money between November and March. And then we just really couldn't figure out a business between the, the summer months. But as we started to grow to a point where Shopify wasn't the right tool for us, and this was like in... 2013, 2014, pretty early Shopify days, there wasn't as much you could do to, to customize the business logic for the platform. 
we started to look around and try to figure out, you know, what we could build on top of, you know, whether that was a Magento or whether that was, you know, Spree was kind of a hot thing in the Rails community at the time. And we ended up picking another company that I ended up working for later on, Reaction Commerce. Uh, And we picked it because it was the stack that I was most comfortable with as a developer. And I think looking back, if we had somebody more experienced uh, leading us, we might have picked something that was more stable. We might have picked something that had a longer history. I don't know that was necessarily the wrong decision. And it certainly, I think, forced me to learn a lot in the role. But it was not necessarily the type of decision that a senior technology leader would have made identically. It's one of those things. It's difficult. It's difficult to say. Sometimes you see very senior people with lots of experience making you know, making decisions that seem maybe to to the outside world or in hindsight, like mistakes. But I'm sure that, you know, under the circumstances, you, you made the you made the decision that made the most sense with with the information that that was there. It's 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 really hard to look back on these things. But yeah, that's that's super interesting. Like basically, con- you know, concluding that when you get thrown into something, you can actually learn pretty quickly. And in general, something that's really guided you in your career has been just focusing on on this growth mindset, always trying to learn new things. When you think about your one-on-one meetings, how were those done? Did you have team you know, meetings? What, what was a collaboration like in general? Like, what would you say was a collaboration stack that you used? Oh, man, that's a great question. So we were at the time, uh, GitHub was like the primary tool that we used. We didn't have Jira, uh, which looking back, I didn't think about how how rare that was. But, you know, we used GitHub and GitHub issues uh, is like our primary tool for for tickets and for collaboration. That worked really well for us because we did want to be able to open up our tickets to comments from our community and from open source contributors in addition to the, the full-time team members. And then we did have some tools that were not as open or that we struggled to open up more publicly. We used Notion uh, pretty early on uh, as kind of our primary document source. And Spencer, I guess like I should have probably clarified when I meant, uh, you know, collaboration stock, I, I, I meant the series of activities that you would do to really get everybody on on the same page. So, for example, one-on-ones, did you have town halls? Did you have you know, just like rituals, retrospectives, you know, various things to, to really get everybody aligned given the the, the time zones? Uh, for me, one-on-ones were the, I guess, probably the most important meeting or the most important tool that I had in my tool belt. That was a way to check in with people who, you know, were really around the world. Uh, while it's tough to get everybody uh, in, in a variety of time zones together for a meeting, I think with enough intentionality, I was able to meet with everybody on on my team at some point and then people who were directly reporting to me and made uh, an intention to meet with every single week and then we had you know i think one of the other things that we would do is we tried to have a manager or somebody in a management capacity within plus or minus two or three hours of any kind of major hub so if we had folks in europe we wanted to have somebody who was able to operate in a management capacity in that part of the world so that you know people on that timeline didn't have to wait until you know, the U.S. was up or something like that in order to to have a connection to a manager. And then the same thing with our Southeast Asia team. We had somebody who was based in the Philippines who operated as the kind of the primary manager for the, the team in that part of the world. We had pretty regular all hands. I think we were doing them once a month. 
that were run by the whole company. We did uh, record those, and I think that was an important tool. Uh, and then we also tried to document uh, anything that was going to come out in those meetings, provide an agenda up front so that people knew what to expect and whether or not it was critical for them to, to be part of that. We would do retros on kind of a team-by-team -team basis. We didn't do an entire company retro or an entire engineering team retro. We would allow each team to do that. Initially, we were really trying to focus so that kind of each build team or you know each project team would have enough overlap in the time zone. So you know we'd have a U.S.-based team, we'd have a kind of a Europe and Africa-based team, and we'd have a Southeast Asia-based team. And so that would allow those teams to have some of the more synchronous meetings, stand-ups, and retros, and uh, planning ceremonies, and things like that in a way that worked best for their schedules. Yeah, so that makes sense. And it's very clever to do that in the sense that, you know, recognizing if you're going to have people in a certain country in a certain location to actually think about having a manager, you know, someone that is somewhat local, maybe similar time zone, and, and try and really get those folks to be able to collaborate uh, in a more synchronous fashion. Let's talk about the the one-on-ones themselves, though. I know you've talked about this a lot, given talks on on the idea of one-on-ones, especially in a in a distributed team. I'm curious to maybe start with you know just describing what your one-on-ones look like. So for me, the I guess the default structure I have for one-on-ones is thirty-minute meetings every single week, and I do that with anybody who directly reports to me. I also have skip level one-on-ones that I have at different cadences. I, I don't try to force those to be every week. And I would say that's usually somewhere between once a month and, and once a quarter, kind of depending on the size of my team at the time. With those one-on-ones, and uh, for some some people, you know, usually managers, sometimes those will end up being one-hour meetings once a week. And it kind of just depends on the kind of the amount of work that we have going on and, you know, sometimes the propensity that people have to to fill up that time but i'll, I'll schedule those or i'll structure those in a way where we always start with a check-in and i think starting with a check-in for me is, is one of the most important things to do and, and really this is about checking in not necessarily about the work that's going on but just about how people are doing and i think especially in a remote context this is so important because you don't necessarily have the same physical signals that you get being in an office with somebody. You can't necessarily read body language in the same way. And then sometimes the, you know, the one-on-one -on -one may actually be the first time you're inter interacting with somebody for the week. You know, even if you're starting the one-on-one -on, -one on Tuesday or Wednesday, maybe you haven't run into that person in other meetings over the course of that week. And so, you know, they could be having a rough week and you might not even know. And if you jump straight into talking about status or talking about work or talking about you know, their career aspirations, but, you know, they've just had a really tough week, they're going to be distracted or you're going to, you know, get the wrong signal from that. And so I think it's really important to start with that check-in and to try to be honest about what else is going on, you know, what's in the background of their mind. And I think for you to also lead the same way, you know, so I try to be honest about if there's something that's distracting for me, you know, as the, the manager coming in, you know, hey, I've been thinking a lot about some situation, you know, the fact that, we went through some layoffs at, at Privy not too long ago. And so, you know, the week after that, I'd go into the one-on-ones, you know, hey, I just want you to know I'm still kind of processing last week. I'm going to try to be present with you. I want us to work through this one-on-one, -on -one, but I, I also want you to know that that's something that's on the back of my mind. 
Um, and I think by being honest about that and, and setting those expectations that you're you're hoping for your team to be able to do that, address that stuff and then and then move on to other conversations. And and sometimes, and my my manager at Reaction Commerce was really good about this, but sometimes the best thing to do with a one-on-one is to say, hey, can I just give you 20 minutes back and you know, go for a walk, take that time. And I think in, in some cases, that's actually a much better use of that time than to try to drill directly into work topics. Interesting. Let, let, let's dive into that a little bit more. So when you say give someone back 20 minutes versus go into work topics. So what I'm hearing is that if you don't have a lot of other stuff to talk to and you might default to say project status checks or, or things like that, you think it's it's actually potentially better to end early and give them their time back versus to talk about those things. I think it can be. And I, think, I mean, there's there's obviously times when you have a you know a project that's you know really critical and you've got you've got some time pressure. But I don't think that's most of the time. And I think if if there's times when people have either not been able to get away from their desk for a while or they've got you know something else going on, sometimes that scheduled one-on-one block is a great time to just step away from the computer, take a little mental refresh break, and be able to come back with with fresh energy. And I think, you know, as as the manager in that situation, you're the one who can cancel the meeting. You know, it's, it's rare, I would say, that, you know, somebody who reports to you is going to directly ask for you to just cancel that meeting. And I do have some team members who will do that now because we've established a bit of a, you know, rapport that, that that's something that we can do. You know, acknowledging that you're the one who has the kind of the positional authority there and you know, having enough empathy to know what it is that your teammate needs. Is that, you know, to get advice or to, to talk to you about something that's bothering them or do they just need time to step away? So we've talked about the the check-in section. So the check-in is is more about really setting the context. What is going on for you in the back of your mind, if there's anything relevant to say, same thing with, with the person that you're meeting with. What is the next section after that? So for me, the the next section after that is really, you know, kind of the meat of the meeting. With all my one-on-ones, I set up a a doc that we share. Uh, We take notes in that doc. Generally, we'll try to have an agenda in that doc. So, you know, if there's something that I want to talk about, uh, I'll put it in the doc and I'll try to do that ahead of time so that, you know, whoever I'm meeting with can read ahead of time, kind of know what I'm hoping to to check in about. and, And I ask that they do the same thing. In practice, my experience is that some people are really good at this and, you know, very organized and, and want to kind of invest in that way. And other people are going to show up and haven't looked at the doc since the last week. And I don't think that's necessarily a reflection on the, you know, the quality or the engagement of the employee. It's just some people, that's how they think. And, and other people, you know, are more in real time, like to have those discussions. So, you know, I think having that shared doc where you can take notes in the meeting and where people can put agenda items ahead of time is is a great way to seed that discussion. But I'll always start that discussion with uh, one of two prompts. You know, the, the one I've used the most is, is where should we start today? And I really like that one because it doesn't presume that the thing that is most important to that person is something they've been willing to write down in the doc. There's two reasons that I see that that happens. One is, you know, maybe they've been busy and, and haven't had a chance to really get to the document. I don't want to say that Whatever I've put in in our shared doc is the most important thing just because they haven't had a chance to get to it. And I think the other reason, maybe even more importantly, is there are certain types of things that you may want to talk about that you don't feel safe putting 
in writing. You know, even though it's a shared doc just between the two of you, there's certain types of feedback maybe you want to share about a coworker or certain types of feedback you want to share upward where you just don't really know how to write it. And so when you when you ask, you know, what's on your mind or, or where should we start today? I think that invites somebody to come and to share something that's uh, you know not necessarily something they've already written down. Yeah, and sometimes you know putting something down, depending on what it is, may actually I would say get the other person to want to message you earlier and say, "Hey, what's this about?" You know, so depending on the topic, there definitely is, there definitely are things that it's almost. Um, you know, we we like to think of it as like there there is the shared agenda and then there's a private agenda and and those two are not necessarily always the same thing, but that makes a lot of sense. So the expectation though is most of the time, or at least what's encouraged is that the person that you're meeting with will bring in items to discuss and and hopefully some of that is in this shared format so that you can also view, maybe process, have a chance to think about it, you know, beforehand. What happens if, I assume you also get to add to, to this as well, what happens if there is a lot to discuss? This is very tactical here, but you know, lots to discuss, lots of items. Either you have a lot of items, they have a lot of items. Do you then turn around and extend the meeting? Do you, like, do you strategically, even though you only have half an hour book, always leave a half an hour gap afterwards? How do you play that part? For me, it's a case-by-case basis. I think there are... There's certainly people I've I've managed who have a tendency to always go over. And there's there's no amount of time you can put on the calendar where you're not gonna kind of run up against the the end of your time, you know, whether that's a 30-minute meeting or an hour meeting. And for those, you know, I think it's important to figure out which of these things are really critical for us to discuss and which of these things, you know, can I say, hey, can we, you know, put this on the agenda for next week? And so I think my default is, and, and the way I, I like to approach this, is as we get towards the end of that time, anything that we haven't gotten to just goes, we, we just move it and we'll both have that doc open. We'll move that into the agenda for the, the next week. That being said, I think there are also times when something really is critical uh, and maybe there's more to talk about than, than you have time to talk about it. And in that case, I'll do one of two things. The first thing I'll do is suggest, hey, let's schedule another meeting later that week. And I think by doing that, you're kind of you're putting enough of a break in the meeting where if it actually doesn't turn out to be that important, somebody might say, well, you know what, actually, let's just talk about it next week. It's really not that critical. And then the, the other thing, and this is, I would say, more rare, but sometimes we will just extend the meeting. I don't have a schedule that's open enough where every one of my one on ones has, you know, a, a large gap after it that I can extend into. But I do occasionally have that. And in that case, you know, I'll go over by 10 or 15 minutes sometimes if there's something that is really important that we're that we're getting into. Hey, super managers, I'm Ariana, product marketing specialist at Fellow. Are you feeling overwhelmed and frustrated by the number of unproductive meetings clogging up your day? On March 14th, Fellow 4.1 is launching. And this time we're bringing you four steps to have more effective meetings and how our new features help support productive meeting habits. Don't let meetings get the best of you and your team. Large, long and unproductive meetings are a thing of the past with Fellow. Join us live on March 14th to save your spot to be one of the first to experience Fellow 4.1. Go to fellow.app forward slash live forward slash launch to register or click the link in the episode description. We hope to see you there. Now, back to the episode. 
what I really liked about what you said is that, I mean, this is one of the nice things, right? So when you have stuff in writing, when there's an agenda before, and you can you can actually look at it, you can you know view those things and figure out what should be discussed first. Hey, we only have 30 minutes, lots of stuff in here. What are the most important things that we need to talk about? And, and you're right, maybe by this time next week, some of the things that the you know needed to be talked about don't need to be talked about they kind of resolve themselves and so i think the the combination of a defined time plus something written where you can review all the things that need to be discussed it's a very powerful combo in in conjunction with that reprioritization that you talked about so i think that's uh that's definitely one of the big value points here so we've talked about the the check-in, we've talked about the main discussion, and then you've also have a, you also have a follow-up section. So what it, what are the follow-ups about? This is a kind of how I organize my docs as well in addition to how I organize the one-on-ones. But at the, at the top of all of our one-on-one docs, we've got kind of like this ongoing items or you know follow-up items that are just perennially up there. And we'll scratch them off if we finish them. Sometimes they turn into do items. For engineers, sometimes they'll turn into to Jira tickets or or other work, or you know, ref- requests for comment, some kind of some kind of technical spec or technical doc. But sometimes it's just you know a, an ongoing topic. Maybe it's you know career check-ins, or maybe it's you know more goal related. Maybe it's something they've asked you to follow up on, but you have multiple layers of, of people to go through. And I think the the thing that's really important to me around follow-ups and around making sure that every one-on-one has at least some some aspect of, of following up is that I think you know, when you're when you're reporting upwards to somebody, it can be awkward to ask about the same thing every week, right? Like it might be on your mind, but the chances that you are actually going to say, "Hey, you know that thing that we've been talking about the last three weeks? Have you done that yet?" As a manager, you can absolutely have that conversation. You know, as the the manager or the direct report, you get to a point where you're like, oh, you know what? They just don't actually care about this. And I don't want to be the, you know, the annoying person. So I'm just going to, I'm going to drop it. And I think as soon as you get to that point, you know, you're, you're maybe at risk of losing that employee. You're, you're kind of starting to indicate that either you don't care or um, that you're not actually going to do what you say you're going to do, which I think is a pretty critical part of, of building trust in teams. And I think, you know, on a remote team, it's, you know, extra challenging to build trust in some ways. And I think, Following up, doing what you say you're going to do is a really critical part of building trust with people. And so I think as a manager, being the person who is going to bring that up, hey, I know I told you I was going to do this. I'm still working on it. It's not done yet. Here's the situation. You know, I was working with a manager to get access to, we had you know some reports that moved from one manager to another. I was working to get them access to some old reviews and things like that. And it was taking longer than I expected. We're in the middle of review season, so it was important. So I had to make sure, you know, I was actually coming back and saying, "Hey, I'm I'm talking to HR. I'm working on getting you those those uh, reviews. Don't worry. I'm, I mean, I am still working on it. I'm sorry, I don't have it yet. And I think that activeness in terms of, you know, addressing things that are their concern but aren't necessarily on the agenda is a really uh, important way to build trust. And I think, you know, intentionally following up on things. And I think that's a great reason to have paper notes or to have you know, written notes that you're sharing because it does prompt you to do that again. But that's that for me is the importance of that follow-up. Yeah, I, I really agree. Sometimes there are things that really, I would say, transcend the 
individual one-on-one. So it's a, it's a multi-week thing. It's a multi-month thing. It's a big priority. Maybe it's something that, you know, it's feedback that either person is working on addressing and, and that takes time and takes effort. But to have something that's a reminder, sometimes maybe you discuss it actively. Sometimes maybe you see it from the corner of your eye and, and that's a reinforcing function. But th- this makes sense. And, and I really like that you called out that difference in that, you know, maybe the manager can hold the other person accountable and ask about things all they want, but it might not be possible or the other person may not do the same. So it really gives the manager that extra prompt. So I, I really like that as well. This is pretty interesting. And and would you say that for your skip levels that y- you do the same thing as well? Is it is it very much the the same format? I would say it's it's very similar. So I think the thing for skip levels, most of the time at least, is that they are infrequent enough that the the type of conversation usually differs. I would say my check-ins for skip levels, I do try to start with the same kinds of questions, but there's less of a you know a strong relationship. And that relationship is separated a little more, at least in terms of the organizational hierarchy. So I don't really expect people who are skip levels to be bringing necessarily a lot of real world stuff. Over time, I think you can develop that that more personal relationship, but I think it's it's a little more rare. In terms of the discussion, I found skip levels to focus, uh, at least the best ones, to focus more on career goals, career aspirations, kind of longer arc goals and things like that that the person has. So, you know, occasionally it'll focus on, you know, specific feedback or you know, I think in some cases, skip levels can turn into uh, kind of gripe sessions or, you know, people feel like they finally have somebody's ear who can make a change and then they want to make sure that they they take advantage of that opportunity. But a lot of times it's more, you know, here's where I'm trying to go with my career. How can you help me get there? Or do you have any advice? And I think that's a really interesting question to engage in. And I found it to be much more macro rather than like the day to day in a lot of my skip levels. So Spencer, I'm going to ask you another very tactical question here. So, you know, one-on-ones, okay, once a week in the vast majority of cases, I assume recurring meeting on the calendar, skip levels infrequent, sounds like for some people once a month, some people once a quarter. How do you, how do you end up scheduling those? Do you actually say, you know, recurring scheduled meeting quarterly with this person and is it all recurring or do you kind of wake up and say, who should I meet this week? Uh, because some people do that. Some people really do do it a more on an ad hoc basis because I assume your schedule varies too, right? If you have some crazy release coming up, some major projects going on, you probably maybe don't have as much, and maybe you don't skip the one-on-ones, but maybe you start to think about the skip levels. And in general, I find that people are a little less, I would say, attentive to the to the skip levels in general. So yeah, how, how do you how, how do you schedule yours or, or make sure that those get done? This is something that I've I guess I've learned the hard way. If I don't put it on my calendar, it is by the time the week of rolls around, it is very hard to find space. So I I personally I schedule them and I will put them as recurring meetings on my calendar. And you know, kind of the frequency or the cadence really depends on the size of my team uh, and kind of the number of those types of meetings that I'm having. For me, it's also, I would say, highly, highly likely or very frequent that I'll end up moving those skip levels. So the fact that something is on the calendar for six weeks from now or for two months from now doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to meet at 2.30 on Tuesday, the you know March 23rd. 
But what it does do is by the time that comes around, I see that meeting on my calendar and it's an indicator that I haven't met with that person in a while. And if I need to move that meeting to a different time in that week, I can do that. And that happens semi-frequently, although I think even having it on the calendar sometimes will allow all of the other meeting Tetris to happen kind of around that, which I think is also useful. But for me, I really I really do have to have it on the calendar. And if I don't have it on the calendar, there's a couple engineers that I, that I didn't meet with for, I think it was almost three months because it just wasn't on my calendar. And, you know, I went back and I was looking through some one-on-one docs. And I think this was in January. And it's like, oh, the last time I met with Dave was in September. Okay, I need to fix that. And so at that point, I made sure to, to schedule it recurring. And usually that's because I've either forgotten to hit the recurring button or, or something slipped off um, and never got rescheduled. Very tactical, but I think it's it's one of those things that it's spoken less about in general. So there's a lot of you know work on one-on-ones with your direct reports. When it comes to the skip levels, the guidance is a little bit more nuanced, right? And so it's it, it's interesting that you apply a lot of the the same sort of logic to those as well, but maybe focus on different sorts of discussion topics overall. So I know that uh, a topic that you're also very passionate about, and, and we should definitely talk about today, is what it looks like when you get acquired, what it may look like for your team, things that need to be considered, you know, either you're acquiring a company, you're being acquired. You know, I think today, recently, you know, Privy was acquired by Attentive. I mean, that's just one example. I feel like you've been through a few of those in your career. So maybe let's talk about that. Maybe there's there's a story or there's there's an example we can talk about and some of the lessons learned in that process. Yeah, that's that's definitely something I have a lot of experience with recently. Um, I think it's a very challenging situation to navigate. I mean, as an employee, I think it's you know management on hard mode. You know, when you're going through an acquisition. When I was at Reaction Commerce, we got acquired by Mailchimp, and then. About a little over two years later, MailChimp was acquired by Intuit. I'm now with Privy, and, and Privy was acquired by Attentive shortly before I joined. Uh, so I, I was not with the acquisition here, but I'm joining a team that has a lot of the same experiences that that I've been through. And you know, I think managing a team that's been through an acquisition is its own comes with its own unique challenges. Specifically, I think you know one of the one of the challenges is around just the communication around the acquisition. Uh, when I was at Reaction Commerce, you know, as one of the leaders of the company, I knew about kind of the possibility of an acquisition far, far before we were able to tell most of the team, you know, probably two or three months before. And it's one of those things where it's it's not final until it's final. You know, you could have an acquisition fall apart on the doorstep and you don't want a whole team of people expecting that an acquisition is going to go through for it to fall apart. I think it's fairly distracting to be thinking about an acquisition. There's you know just so many different things that absolutely will change. And so I think there's this weird and kind of delicate balance between driving hard on all of the initiatives and all of the, the projects that, that feel really important at the time in order to kind of keep that normalcy for the team and also kind of allowing some space because you know that as soon as that acquisition does go through, once it becomes final, everything will change. All of the projects that you've been working on, you know, all of the things that feel just really critical, kind of take a backseat to integrating and to you know, the, the job of actually merging with this, this new company. 
You know, what's really interesting about this is you're, you're absolutely right. Acquisitions can fall apart last minute. Sometimes they fall apart and start again multiple times. Sometimes it's you know a matter of months. Sometimes it, it's 18 months. These things are very finicky. And the thing I find really interesting about this is a lot of companies, especially in tech, modern tech startups, a lot of us talk about transparency and being very transparent with the employees and we share our numbers and we share all the things and everybody can know about everything. <laughs> but one of the big except ifs is this acquisition process, but for good reason, right? It, it's it's the most distracting thing in the world. I mean, once uh, you know your company really starts getting larger and, and doing some cool things out there, I mean, people will be knocking on your doorstep, you know, every Tuesday. And so, and that's not the sort of thing you want to email to your whole company base. Hey, on Tuesday, we got it. yet another acquisition offer. And so it is very interesting. Like the transparency thing is true, but some things are truly distracting and they're not, you know, they're noise more than signal until they become signal. 100% agree with that. And I think the, the delicate balance is, you know, between being made, I don't want to say overly transparent because I do think transparency is a is a virtue in, in most companies, but kind of sharing information that you know is more noise than signal, as you said, or you know, it has a low likelihood of of becoming reality because I think it's it's so easy to be distracted by the what ifs and the the impact. Um there's so many things that change for you when you do have that acquisition become final. Your career ladder changes, the people that you're working with change. You might have, you know, new or different healthcare or, you know, kind of different benefits because you've joined a different company. And in the best case scenario, those things are all improving, but it's still changing. And that change can be really challenging. And so I think, you know, just kind of it's so distracting to be looking ahead. You know, it just makes it very difficult to focus on on the task in front of you. And I think the the flip side of that though is is equally challenging where, you know, I think one of the things that that I ran into as a manager at Reaction Commerce is I felt like I was really trying to encourage people to continue to work on something that I knew if this acquisition went through was unlikely to be terribly important. And so you're really encouraging people to still, you know, work hard and, and focus on, you know, projects that maybe you don't actually believe are going to be critical but if the acquisition does end up falling apart, then that work's still important. And so it's it's this really delicate balance, I think, between continuing to to kind of keep that normal pace and that normal approach to work uh, and the the urgency that comes with some of these startups that are in that that state, and also being transparent about you know what's actually going on. I mean, that's very interesting, right? Like you you almost have to have this dual mindset. You you can't put all your you know, eggs in that acquisition basket. As you said, these things are finicky. So it makes sense to obviously get the team to continue to work on those projects. What other advice would you have to company leaders maybe as the acquisition happens? So now say it's been announced, it's real. What are some things that you've learned, maybe some mistakes that are worth sharing in, in this process or things that you learned about afterwards? One of the the most challenging things is to be really clear about you know why the acquisition was happening. Uh, so one of the acquisitions that that I went through, it wasn't super clear why the company was acquired. That you know, and I think there's a lot of different reasons that the companies are acquired, but in this case, it was: is this an acquire? Are we are we bringing this company in to you know essentially put 
more people on a on a project that they haven't been working on. We're you know really trying to to hire or to acquire for talent, or are we hiring or acquiring for this product? And those are very different sets of assumptions to to join a new company with. And in one of those acquisitions, the the team that we ended up joining really believed strongly that this was kind of an actual hire. And you know there was this strong belief that. We were bringing, I don't know, let's say 20 engineers into a project that was on track, was was likely to, you know, to be the right product to build, um, and they just really needed more more bodies, more more people to to help execute. And I think the the story that a lot of the team that had been acquired was told is, hey, we don't really know what we're doing. We're trying to build this new software, but we're not sure we've done it right. And, you know, we're going to you know bring you all in. You have this product you've built. And that clash uh, or that, that acquisition led to kind of a, a clash in understanding where I think if we'd just been really clear about with both sets of teams, both the, the team that was kind of absorbing the company and the, the company that was being acquired, it would have been much less contentious when we joined. I think there's probably a wide variety of different kinds of expectations like that that you can set, but just making sure that people both on the acquiring side as well as on the, the existing company side are on the same page and understand, you know, what the what the goals are is, is really important. Yeah. And, and you know, to the listeners who have been through one of these, maybe they will totally relate, but... You know, for everybody else who's wondering, how could they not know why they were acquiring the company? That's a lot more common as well. And so oftentimes, and, and you know, the reason is these discussions start, maybe there there's an initial reason, but as you talk with the other company, then other reasons form and then and then the the brainstorming happens and then there there might be other reasons. And so and different uh, parties, even in the acquiring company, might have different motivations. Uh, so depending on who you talk to, there might be slight variations to that. But, yeah, it is a very complex organization. And I do agree with you that just clarity as much as, as possible, you know, is, is going to make all the difference there. I know when we started the discussion, there were three major topics that we said that we would talk about today. Uh, so we did talk about our one-on-ones. We just talked about the acquisitions. And, you know, fun fact, we've been talking a lot about delegation in the last few episodes. So, and I know you have a thing or two to say about delegating as well. This is arguably one of those things that managers, they do and and they keep doing and you hopefully keep getting better at this. This is one of those things that's really hard, hard to master, you know, in, in a couple of years. And I feel like you you learn it more deeply over time. But curious, what are some of the, the, the main things that you've learned about delegating and things that you would share with the audience today? Yeah, so I really love kind of focusing on delegation. I think there's there's a few things that we could talk about here with delegation. But but one of the things that I think I like to focus on is, you know, how to make sure that your team feels safe to take on new responsibilities when you're delegating. And there's a there's a model I really like called the, the comfort stretch panic model. And it describes three different zones. So in the comfort zone, this is where you're you're really comfortable. You've probably executed in that zone before. It's you know tasks that you're very comfortable doing. The stretch zone is, you know, things that are really at the boundary of your ability level. Maybe it's something that you've never done before, but you think you might be able to do. Maybe it's something you've done before, but you struggled with. 
but it's something that you're you're not necessarily super confident that you're gonna you're gonna be able to do. And then beyond that stretch zone is is the panic zone. And this is where you're not only uncomfortable, but you're so uncomfortable that that you're likely to freeze up and either to do a poor job or to you know kind of freeze and 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 not even necessarily get the task completed. And one of the things that I found, you know, when delegating is that there's kind of two different types of delegation. You may delegate a task because there's really somebody on your team who's better suited for it. You know, I think if you build a team effectively, you're going to be hiring people who are better than you at a lot of different things. I think the, you know, the best managers don't have a team where they're the best at everything. The best managers have a team where they have experts in a lot of different areas and they can kind of farm out work to people who are really good at that. So you may have, you know, work that comes in where it's just, you know, you're the router. You you take some task and you you find the best person on your team to do it. But there's also work that you want to delegate as a manager because you're trying to help somebody grow. And I think that's the other type of delegation that that I look at is when you're you're trying to take something that might be in somebody's stretch zone and, and you want to help them learn, you want to help them have an experience that they haven't been able to have yet. And I think in order to do that, you have to have enough psychological safety on your team where somebody feels safe failing. You know, if you can't fail, you can't stretch. The more safety there is to fail on your team or in your organization, the larger that that stretch zone is going to be. And if if you have a team where it's failure is, is routinely criticized or punished, then people are going to have a comfort zone and they're going to have a panic zone. And there's not going to be much of a layer of stretch zone. You're going to end up with people who just really stick to the, the work that they already know how to do. So I think, you know, psychological safety in a lot of ways, I think is a really a dependency of effective delegation. And until you have that psychological safety, you're not going to be able to delegate things beyond people's comfort zones. I really love the way you put that, which is if there's no psychological safety, you kind of lose the stretch zone and then you're in between comfort and panic. So super interesting to to put it that way. Spencer, I know we're we're coming up against time here. We've talked about so many different concepts, managing across time zones, one-on-one meetings, delegating, talking about acquisitions. And so the final question that we always like to ask everybody who comes on the show is for all the managers and leaders constantly looking to get better at their craft, are there any final tips, tricks, or words of wisdom that you would leave them with? I guess the the last thing, I love that question to, to end up with, but the last thing that I would leave people with is, you know, trying to lean into your influence rather than your authority. It's not to say that there is is no time when you you know necessarily have to have a mandate for something, but if you find yourself needing to put out an edict or put out a mandate for why something has to be a certain way, I think it's worth asking one, why is that so important to you? And two, why don't people align with your approach? Now, consensus is really difficult. You know, I don't under no illusion that you can get consensus on everything. But if you do find yourself leaning into that authority more than leaning into influence, I think there's you know some really fundamental questions that's important to ask about you know why you're having to do that so much. Uh, I found that leaning into writing and really trying to explain the reasoning and the the context around decisions has allowed people, even if they may disagree with me about the exact approach, to understand why I'm, I'm choosing that approach, and, and you know not necessarily to to fundamentally disagree with the, the ultimate decision, even if they would personally choose something different. That's great advice and a great place to end it. Spencer, thanks so much for doing this. 
Yeah, thank you, Aiden. And that's it for today. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Supermanagers podcast. You can find the show notes and transcript at www.fellow.app/supermanagers. If you like the content, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so you can get notified when we post the next episode. And please tell your friends and fellow managers about it. It'd be awesome if you could help us spread the word about the show. See you next time.